Welcome to Career in Ruins, where dreams come true, if those dreams are to listen to two idiots talking about archaeology. So, what's coming up this week, Lawrence? Well, this week I've been talking to Keith Wilkinson at University of Winchester about um, how he's got to where he is and some of the projects he's been working on and I think it's actually quite an interesting take on archaeology and particularly his take on the time machines. Really fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing that. Uh, how you been? What, what's been on your mind this week? Oh, it's been an interesting week this week. So um, it's Easter, so I've taken a week off work, which is nice. Um, spending some quality time with the family, um, escaping archaeology for a bit, other than this podcast, obviously. <laughs> um, but the reason I mention it is my the first day of my leave was kind of punctuated by a, a double rejection. Oh. If you will. Um, rejected on a grant and rejected on a paper, oh. all, all within about an hour of each other. Um, <laughs> which it, it got me thinking, really, because it highlighted a little bit about the world we live in, particularly the kind of the academic side of archaeology that, that I tend to occupy myself in. And the the sort of pros and cons of it, really, and, and how you become resilient to that and how you you move through it and I after sort of the first hour when I was I was quite happy to trash the room I was in if I could <laughs> after that sort of the Use initial words. <laughs> after the initial kind of shock subsided it occurred to me that those kind of rejections don't get to me nearly as much as they used to when I was when I was younger and I think that's there's a, a big part of the life we lead is responding to things like that in a positive way and taking something good from it. Um, an element of it that I find a little bit frustrating is the feedback in those instances isn't necessarily as positive as you'd hope. I mean, I spend my days marking assignments, marking coursework, marking dissertations. And one of the things universities are incredibly keen on is giving constructive, helpful feedback. And in both instances, the feedback was either absolutely nothing or you should have read this but not telling me what to have read. So it's so frustrating. <laughs> Why haven't you read that thing? What thing? Yeah. That thing. You know, the thing, the thing I'm not going to mention. Um, oh, no. It, it's, it's sort of day one of holiday, but I've, I've shaken that all off now, so it's all oh, about podcasts now. I'm glad you're feeling better. Because <laughs> I think applying for funds and grants and project money is something that perhaps is overlooked by a lot of people with, with regards to academia. You, they see the teaching side and they perhaps see the headline-grabbing research, but what they don't understand or perhaps comprehend is that there's a lot of front-loading of work of getting the funds and the grant applications and the paper proposals that that has to happen before you can do any of this headline-grabbing stuff. And you're not just teachers, you're, you're researchers. In a way, it's, it's difficult because it's a, it's a constant cycle. In, in one instance, we're expected to... It sounds like a moan. It shouldn't be a moan. I'm not... I, I love my job and I love my career, but... My job is three different jobs. I, I have to teach, which is brilliant. And actually, the teaching is probably the part that I enjoy the most. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy the student-focused side of it. Um, but in order to teach our specialisms, we need to maintain that specialism. We need to we need to research. We need to be active in our disciplines. And to do that, we need to publish and we need to bring in money. Without those two things, it doesn't feed into the teaching. So the teaching itself falls back and becomes outdated. So it's it's a constant cycle of... Um, applying and writing and working and every one of those sort of 10 second rejections is months of work and effort but you can't help but have a little bit of uh you you kind of give a little bit of yourself too and it 
it, I'm getting better at not taking it personally, I think, but it's still, there's still that initial uh, frustrating Aww. and shock. But then I spent a few days having a nice yeah, bit of leave. Of so and presumably good. it's all reusable. Yeah, and that's, that's the nicest thing. So the paper we will take the feedback on board, what little feedback there was, and, uh, and retask it and refocus it onto something stronger, hopefully, in a different guise, possibly even a different journal. And the, the really nice thing about grant writing is it's cumulative. Mm. So you build an idea, that idea germinates, you write it down, you collaborate with colleagues, um, you share ideas, you build those ideas, you submit it. It doesn't end there. Once, once you get it, you keep growing it and flourishing it or if you don't get it you readjust you refocus and you build on that foundation so it's not time wasted yeah. um, I tell myself now as, well, as an idiot once <laughs> said to me everything happens for a reason for a reason Derek so I'm sure it will work out fine in the end <laughs> idiot <laughs> so how about you what have you been up to this week um well I, we've got a work placement student um working with us in the new forest at the moment who's actually come from your institute yeah. Bournemouth University a chap called Jack and um he's just coming towards the end of his placement now and we've been working with him on his final project which is he's been doing this amazing job resurveying uh, doing geophysics survey on excavated Roman pottery kilns in the new forest so these are excavated by, excavated by a chap called Hayward Sumner in 1925 Ooh. and they're scheduled monuments and there's, mm. there's questions around whether the scheduling's in the right place. So can you see the trenches on the ground or are they? Sort of in the there's a vegetation change mm. but also there's not that I mean it's 75 years or so since yeah, uh, he's yeah. done, well no almost 100 years since he's done wow. his, um, his his excavation so um, but the, the purpose of his research is to try and pin down exactly where these scheduled sites are to inform management and um, so he's actually the third placement student we've had with us in six years. Mm. And they do these year-long placements. And each, at the end of each one, we ask them to write a blog post for the National Park website. Oh, wow. And they reflect on um, what they've done. And then we, we contact pre, the previous placement student to see where they are now. And it's, just, it's been really nice... Whilst Jack's been writing this blog, we contacted our last placement student, which is someone you know well, Josie Hagen. Yeah, yeah. And um, she's off in New Zealand at the moment doing amazing stuff with LIDAR and uh, hill forts and other exciting things. And she's she sent through a where am I now couple of paragraphs of what, what, what she's done. And um, it's just got me thinking about the benefits of doing work placements and whether they're paid or unpaid. Obviously, there's issues around unpaid work placements, but... The skills and the abilities that these things give people, and I know I wouldn't be where I am today without having taken work, taken up work opportunities and unpaid work opportunities. But people, whilst they're not giving me money necessarily, they're giving me time and experience, and it's certainly shaped to, to where I am today. Got helped me get to where I am today, and it's just nice reflecting on what these previous work placement students have done as well. Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, I, I obviously see it from the other side. We we send you these wide-eyed students, and you send them back a year later as fully fledged adults in a way. And the, the value of the placement is clear. Both tends to be clear both in the grades of the students you take and their attitude to work and their attitude to life. And I, I'm a really big fan of the, the the placement style of degrees where you take a year a year to do that work. And you're right though, it is it is an issue or a potentially controversial issue at the moment with unpaid placements, mm. um, with perhaps government changing policy on that. Do you think as as someone who takes placements, would that 
prevent you from doing it in the future? It's tricky because we are a government agency. We mm. have limited budgets. The government set what our budgets are for and we have to apply our budgets for items that are set on our business plan or our partnership plan. So we have clear outlines of what we have to do. So it's very hard to find specific budgets to pay for a, a prof- professional um, or a, a university undergraduate professional to come in and work with us. So finding budgets for placements are difficult. And uh, I, I wouldn't expect you to answer this now because it perhaps it puts you in an <laughs> awkward position, but I do question how universities can expect um, students to go out and get work placements and get the experience they deserve, deserve and require to go forth and be, be better and inform their studies but not offer up support. They happily celebrate the fact that they've got the yeah, most work yeah. placement students of any university or that, um, that they are offering this sandwich year that they, they go to. And this is universities across the UK, not, not anyone in particular, I should say. But there's no offer of collaboration. There's no offer of, um, uh, of support or, or combined working. It's just, yeah, you'll find a placement. I think it, it is an issue and, I mean, we, we do... In a sense, we do what we can within the, the budgetary, budgetary restrictions we have too. Um, I'd love to offer every student who comes to, to BU a, a fully funded year's placement mm. somewhere. Um, uh, it would be, I think it would add to the degree, but the, the, the monetization within higher education at the moment just wouldn't wouldn't yeah. allow that to happen. And I think it is, it is sad because the, the value of it is so strong. Mm. It would be wonderful to see a system where... Perhaps there's funding streams through which students can apply for those kind of placements because in in removing the uh, perhaps quite rightly removing unpaid in unpaid internships and unpaid placements as an option I, I kind of I can understand that because it removes a certain kind of disparity between the ability to be able to fund yourself for a year and those who can afford to do that but in the heritage industries money is so restricted across the board it's gonna be quite problematic it's if we were in accounting finance where funded placements of a norm i think it'd be very different but it's it's something that going forward is going to be quite problematic and i think it'll be unfortunate if we lose those Mm. without finding a way to to fund them better and make them more manageable in the long run well, at the risk of assuming we've got more listeners than we do, I'm going to throw it out there that if anyone's got any ideas of how we can mm. develop collaborative working within the uh, the industry as a whole, um, both on the academic side and by whether it's commercial archaeology or government organisations, local government organisations, uh, Historic England, National Parks, whatever that might be, I know there are apprenticeship schemes coming up, but again, that is not quite work placements based out of universities. Yeah, yeah. It certainly opens up an opportunity, but... Yeah, let's get the discussion going. I think um, they're invaluable, but there are issues with them. So I'd be interested to know if anyone's got any thoughts. Yeah, I'd certainly love to see more well-funded placements out there for, for heritage students. And I or think there, there is an opportunity for universities to step up here. I'm not saying offer up funding for every student that they mm. have that's going on a placement, but if you're going to offer up the option of a placement year, then at least have three funded opportunities that schemes, you're, yeah. people can apply for to for internal funding on pretty sure students are still playing, paying for their uh, tuition fees those years. So, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's work on both sides that can be done there. Mm, something to look into. <laughs> so, moving forward from that, should we have a quick listen to your interview with Keith? Yeah, let's go straight in, I think. We'll have a chat halfway through. Magic. 
Keith, welcome to the Careers and Ruin podcast. Thank you. Um, we know each other, you're actually my PhD supervisor, I'm currently doing I'm part indeed, of yes, part for three years now. Three years now, um, I'm, that's at University of Winchester, um, but you're a lecturer here at the university. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview of how you got to where you are today, and some, perhaps some of the highlights, the routes you've taken. Okay, I suppose I, when I was 17, I wanted to go into the Air Force. I got, I went to Biggin Hill, I was accepted, but the job I wanted to do, there were no vacancies for three years. So I had three years to kill. So I had to decide what I wanted to do and I thought I'd take the opportunity to go to university. I studied history at school, but uh, in those days and where I was went to school, there was no option to do archaeology. So I didn't know anything about archaeology. So I was interested in history, but wanted to do something practical. So my history teacher suggested that I do archaeology. Um, I then went to the Institute of Archaeology, which had just become part of UCL. Um, and I started there and I thought I was uh, interested in Roman archaeology. So I sort of among the compulsory courses, I took a module in Roman archaeology. And I found that it was actually not my interest but what really sparked my imagination was taking a course in I suppose what we'd call environmental archaeology so I'd given up biology and geography at an early stage of my school career for various reasons but but this really got my interest so for the next two years I specialised in environmental archaeology and I took courses all the courses I could in that subject. Um, so I did, I did relatively well as a result. Um, uh, my dissertation supervisor asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I didn't know. Uh, he suggested, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And I thought, no, I haven't thought about <laughs> doing that. These are the days when you didn't need to have done a master's in archaeology to do a PhD. So he offered me a project looking at um, the geomorphology of the... Brighton, the route of the Brighton Bypass, okay. which was then going about to be built. So I did. I took on that PhD and I looked at sort of sedimentology, geomorphology, and land snails of that route. So I was funded by a research council, but a lot of money also came from English Heritage to pay for various things for dates mainly. So I, you know, I got through that. I can't. I can't say that by the end of it, it was my. You know, I'd probably become a little bored of it. So, but I got the PhD. Um, as you know, we've discussed before, I then went on to work for a company called Geoarchaeological Service Facility, which was then based at the institute. Uh, so, I worked for there for them for a couple of years on a freelance basis. Was that environmental? Yeah, looking at sort of more geological side of archaeology, doing a bit of snail work, mainly on projects they. That company had in Dover and that was fantastic because that was working with five or six people who all had similar sort of interests we kind of sparked off each other we did some really really good work um, but the work for me dried up and I had to get another job so I looked in any place you could look in those days which was the Guardian um, sort of job adverts and I saw something at a company based in Sarancester then called Cotswold Archaeological Trust. Um, it was just advertising a project officer job, you know, standard sort of digging job, but I'm from Cheltenham, so not so far away, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. So I applied, um, I got turned down for that job, but because I had no, no real experience of managing 
any archaeological excavations. But the uh, boss of the company, a guy called Neil Holbrook, he, he said, but I have got this other job. Um, it's a job to run a GIS project on medieval settlement in the Cotswolds. I didn't know anything about GIS, and I certainly didn't know medieval settlement in the Cotswolds, but it was a job, so I said yes. So I sort of learnt about GIS on the job, as it were. And by GIS, you mean geographical information Geographical systems, information so systems, um, yeah. Mapping software? Yeah, mapping software in the sort of dim and distant days when it wasn't properly integrated and a bit clunky. But we did the project. It was, I can't pretend it was a huge success, but... It, Alongside doing the project, I built up um, sort of an environmental archaeology um, part of the of Cotswold Archaeological Trust, and I brought in work from other organisations as well as doing Cotswold's own work. Um, so I did that for three, four years, um, but found that I was, you know, obviously restricted from being in a commercial sector to working on projects for which there was money and which we got contracted to do the work and wanted to do something that sort of more matched my own interests. So I was looking for an academic job. Uh, then one came up at what was then King Alfred's College as a lecturer in environmental archaeology. I applied for that. Um, I was surprised because I got it. Mm -hmm. And that was 22 years ago, and I've been here ever since. Wow. And so your current role, and so <clears throat> it was once King Alfred's College... It's now yeah. University of Winchester. So Winchester. it's passed through various incarnations and it's been the University of Winchester since 2004. Mm -hmm. So I'm still, um, I still am technically a reader in environmental archaeology, um, although I teach very little environmental archaeology now. So I teach a bit of it in, as part of our first year, but mainly I teach and research in geoarchaeology, so application of geological methods to archaeological problems and that's where my research lies as well. Okay and so presumably while you've been here you, you've got a series of research projects you've been working on as well. Yeah so my I mean as happens with everyone's career your, your research interests change both the sort of geographic area and the you know, period so I, I was mainly British focused when I started mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, was, I guess I was more interested in later prehistory, but as my career has gone on, I've, um, I've sort of worked always in prehistory, but um, I've, my focus has got earlier and earlier, so I now work entirely in the Paleolithic. Mm -hmm. uh, both, so how many years ago is that? I don't think you can put a figure on it, because <laughs> even when I was at the Institute of Archaeology, working for GSF, I was doing work on Paleolithic sites, and I found it interesting, but I never thought that um, it would be possible to focus my research entirely on that. So, mm. so I've always had an interest. It's always been a period that's interested me. And I suppose my main, uh, you know, transfer entirely to the Paleolithic came when I began to work in Armenia, which was in two thousand and six. Okay. So, and that's you know, the Southern Caucasus is where most of my research is now carried out. And the term Paleolithic, is that transferable across all your areas of research, where the timescale's slightly different? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm not own, I don't only work on the Paleolithic. I suppose when I work outside the UK, but I do only work on the Paleolithic, so I work in Armenia, Georgia, and site in Belgium. But in the UK, um, I also run a 
sort of geoarchological unit called ARCA, and we obviously work on any period for which people will mm -hmm. pay us to do work. Okay. First bit of the interview done. Um, as we've seen with all the people we've had on the podcast so far, their Keith's experience has been really varied, and whether it's location or uh, or time period. Um, but I should say that we were visited by Robin Hood in that. Interview. <laughs> um, I enjoyed the little. And he, he sort of knocked on the window, waved, <laughs> let off his little horn. <laughs> <laughs> and then bugged off. Right? Classic Robin Hood. But, that was, that was, uh, apologies for that. Uh, these things can't be helped. I mean, you're right. I mean, what a varied career as well. He started out looking at Roman stuff. And now, as, as he said in the interview, there's this research is dominated by the Paleolithic, which is, um, to those listeners that don't know, it's a hugely long time ago. It dates back as sort of right to our earliest hominid ancestors up to three million years ago, and then up until the, um, the Middle Stone Age, some 11 or 12,000 years ago. Yeah. So it's a huge, huge time frame of human history. And you you imagine that, that long depth of time just has one name. <laughs> like everything since is periodized and split into different groups and subgroups. But then you've got the Paleolithic, which is just huge. <laughs> and also with minimal footprint really in <laughs> yeah. terms of an archaeological footprint yeah. in comparison to all <clears throat> other time periods so um modern farming as we know it which appears perhaps in the bronze age and um artifacts all the other all the other time yeah, periods we have technology mysteries yeah, society yeah, city settlements yeah. suddenly yeah you've just got fewer hand axes <laughs> it's hard oh, so i i could see why someone who is kind of drawn to environmental archaeology would also be drawn to the paleolithic because i think it could bring a yeah, oh, yeah. bring a huge amount to it and that feeds that that's their main source of evidence to yeah. inform their research isn't it there, there was one gem early on in that interview that to me it just sprung out it, it highlighted why why i think everyone should pursue a career in ruins really um it was probably the best advert you can have for a career in ruins and it, it ran quite true to me in a sense because um keith was talking a little bit about how he'd given up um, biology at school and yet went into archaeology and suddenly went down an environmental science side and I was exactly the same I'd studied chemistry in school and I must say I didn't do too well um, and yet now do geochemistry and, and archaeological science and it's one really nice thing about this whole subject is because it's applied because everything you do you're asking questions you're investigating things it's a, it's a truly applied science it contextualizes all of that stuff that to me in school just felt abstract and yeah. uh, it gave me a, a different direction in life and it was nice to see someone else in that same boat. It's funny you say that, I met someone just today and she was at a conference on about leisure and tourism and I, I was chatting away to her and I explained that I was an archaeologist. She said, oh, my son's doing an archaeology degree at Cardiff University. And um, I explained to him I'd learnt GIS for my, um, I'd done a hard geography degree and uh, I'd learnt GIS, and he went on to explain how geography is rubbish and it has no application in anything. <laughs> I tried to explain to him that, that actually geography has a pretty hard standing in a lot of aspects of archaeology. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> many of us would consider ourselves dabblers in the, in the <laughs> geographic sciences. The more depressing side of that story was then she went on to say that he loves GIS, but archaeology is rubbish and has no place. <laughs> but well, I think we'll skim over that. Career in ruins. Yeah, career in ruins. <laughs> oh, but that, that kind of brings me on to another. There was a quote, and I, I wrote it down verbatim because it, 
after our first conversation about grants and papers, it just it kind of sung out to me when he just said, I can't pretend it was a huge success. I think that <laughs> the confidence he had in his voice when he said that made me really happy because he it, obviously he's he's done some research and it's not necessarily gone the direction he thought it was going to go over time, but he's moved on and he's developed and there's, there's hope for all of us. That's uh, it. And uh, I'm sure it was a lot better than yeah, <laughs> like with all of us. So, yeah. We're all very good at being critical, but yeah, I'm sure it was a lot better than he gives it credit for. Um yeah, I, the thing I liked about that is his chat about early GIS or geographical information <laughs> systems because we're both quite avid GIS users. Yeah. We love a bit of mapping and cartography oh, yeah, yeah. and survey. Um, map geeks, definitely. Yeah, map, map geeks. geeks. Uh, one thing I can say, hand on heart, I am so happy to be doing archaeology when I am now as opposed to in the 1980s or even oh, 1990s. Yeah. Because those softwares were rubbish. Even going back to uni, when I was finishing my undergraduate in 20, 2008, mm. thinking oh, yeah. back at some of the stuff we were using. What did we have? Map then? info at the time. That's uh, grass info. was around. And we were given um, some sort of CAD drawing. Sort of, a CAD, not, not AutoCAD, but a really obscure CAD program. Wow. So, Do all your planning in this. <laughs> uh, luckily, someone else taught me, uh, a very wise person taught me about ArcGIS. Imagine, imagine even doing that analog. Though I remember when I was at, at working at Wessex Archaeology as a as a recent graduate, um, so working for a commercial company, going to their map room and their drawings room, and it was piles and piles of drawings that had been photocopied, inked, shrunk down in a photocopier, redrawn, <laughs> traced, added to another drawing. It, I, and uh, it was then I realised. Blimey, we've moved forward. And that, I mean, that was still over a decade ago. And things have moved forward since then, even. But it was just to see this legacy of, of years of analogue um, images and matrices and site plans. If insane. I, I were, my career in ruins would be in ruins if I was in that time period. Because I can't draw for toffee. I haven't got the patience for that sort of thing. I need a computer to be able to go delete, 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 okay, start again, trace around that. There's a lot to be said for it, for sure. <laughs> I am so very grateful. I, yeah, that moving forwards, we, we exist in a time where a lot of our data is born digital now, so there's, we're not even capturing much of the data in an analogue way and then subsequently digitising it. It's data that is being produced in a digital medium. We're curating it digitally, augmenting it, adding to it, building on it, and it's it's a it's a whole new challenge, I guess, but it's, think, I think, probably an easier challenge than some of our do predecessors. You, <laughs> do you think when Keith talked about doing snail work, he just meant drawing maps really slowly rather than analysing snail remains? I like to think so, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Keith, should we get back to the interview? Should yes. we listen to the next bit? Yes. So we, we have a set number of questions that we ask everyone that we interview. And yeah. the first one is, is in that, that very wide-ranging bit of work that you've done to date um, from all over the place and looking at all different time periods, all the way back to the Paleolithic, which is a long, long time ago. Um, is there a bit of work that you're particularly proud of? <laughs> I don't know if... Well, that's a difficult one. Um, I don't know particularly proud. I think, bizarrely, you know, some of the work we did when we... Uh, when I was part of this GSF group, you know, very early on in my career, I, in some ways that was... I had the most time to focus on that work. Mm -hmm. I guess it was, you know, I, I was young, um, I had a fewer commitments, didn't matter if we carried on working into the evening and then we would carry on talking about projects 
you know, in pubs, various pubs and so on. So I think that was all, that was in many ways the most interesting part of the career. That sounds rather sad, doesn't it? No, it no, happened no. very early on. <laughs> um, I suppose in the recent past, then I guess the work that has been the most significant if you, is that that um, a guy called Dan Adler at University of Connecticut and I have done at a site called Norgeri One in Armenia, which uh, is a site preserved, a, a middle and lower Paleolithic site preserved between two lava flows. So it's not quite Pompeii-like, but it's given us the opportunity to very closely data site to look at um, obsidian assemblages that are almost pristine, but recognise in that site the transition from um, a technology called the Acherlian, which is associated with the lower Paleolithic and is normally assumed to require very basic cognitive skills to to make to another technology called the Lavalois, which is characteristic of the middle Paleolithic and which is conceptually much more uh, difficult to make. And we've dated that transition on the site to 320,000 years ago, which is particularly, well, the earliest recorded anywhere oh, wow. for that transition. So it makes the site significant. I, I mean, I don't think the nest. I mean, clearly this, although our, we've dated it to 320,000, there you know, must be older sites showing the same thing, but it just demonstrates that, you know, assumptions made on the basis of digging sites in France, for example, you know, don't necessarily hold good for the whole world. So that's, I guess that's the most interesting. That's fascinating. How, how are you getting those dates from those, those sites? So the dates on that site, um, because the site is associated with volcanic material, so there's a basalt flow, so former lava flow, both beneath the site and above the site, then we can date that using a variant of potassium-argon dating called argon-argon dating, which allows... So us good they named it twice. Yeah, <laughs> well, two isotopes of argon. So um, it enables us to get very precise ages, so... Uh, you know, the top lava is 197,000 plus or minus six, I think, you know, quoting <laughs> offhand. So if you think about it in percentage terms, it's a very small error. Mm -hmm. And then the lower lava is 440,000 plus or minus about the same. But we've also got volcanic ash within the site as well. And we've been able to argon-argon date the ash. And we've got a date of about 308,000. Mm -hmm. And then the Archaeological material sits just below that ash. Okay. Oh wow! So it's very precise, and you know, and that relationship with volcanic uh, materials for a Paleolithic site always makes that Paleolithic site easier to yeah. date. Is that quite unique? That no, no, not really. I mean, not certainly not for that part of the world. Mm. Um, you know, Armenia's uh, a, sort of a country that is dominated by volcanic rocks, and if you were to go to East Africa, then the Rift Valley is associated with volcanism and many of the Rift Valley sites are dated by the same approach. Okay, oh, that's great. Well, thank you for that. Um, so the next question mm -hmm. is, so we talked about what you're particularly proud of or you enjoyed uh, as part of your career. Is there being a discovery or a project or a final, anything like that, you've been particularly, particularly envious of? <laughs> envious. Yeah. Oh gosh, that is a difficult question. No, I don't. I don't think I've got a personality that that. Um, not not so much envious. envious. That, that, like oh, that, that's a, that you're like that really caught your imagination, or that you you 
not so much envious of that you wish you'd found it yourself, but more, oh, that's a really nice bit of work. And and quite, really uh, well. well, maybe I can rephrase it a, a slight, slightly. In when I was early on in my career at UCL and um, early on when I was starting at Winchester, the excavations at Boxgrove were still ongoing. And I visited the site um, several times as a visitor. And, you know, I, a lot of my friends and colleagues, um, people I worked with worked at Boxgrove and, um, you know, presented these stories of what an interesting place it was to work in so many different ways. And, you know, it has had fantastic archaeology. So I guess my regret is never having worked there, never having sort of been part of that, that group that dug the site because it is such an amazing site. Yeah, it's quite a special place there. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh. But it's, I mean, you know, there are, I mean, I was doing other things that were interesting, but yeah. perhaps I was doing less interesting things. <laughs> right. Hindsight and all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, nice. That's a good good choice, I think. Okay, so final question uh -huh. um, as part of this. So Derek and I have actually successfully rebuilt a time machine. Um, have and you? We have, yeah. It's amazing. And yeah. Hence why I'm so far behind with my research. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's invested a lot of time. Um, we offer everyone that comes on the pod podcast a free ticket, return ticket, <laughs> to uh, anywhere and any time that they wish. Right. So congratulations to your ticket. Um, where would you like to go? Uh, I don't like that. Is a, that's a question I wasn't expecting. I... Am I allowed to go back beyond archaeology? Yeah, I would like I would like to go back to the Cretaceous tertiary um, boundary. How far back are we talking? We're talking that? sixty-two and a half, sixty-three million years. I'd like to see <laughs> whether you know, because there's obviously the the, the meteorite impact, which most you know, almost everybody says was the the cause of the end of the dinosaurs. I would like to. I would like to sort of live isn't the right word because I probably wouldn't live very long, but I'd like to sort of see the aftermath of that, uh, see the impact and the aftermath and exactly what it did because so much has been written about the sort of effective volcanic winter that was the result of that meteorite impact with huge amounts of dust sort of leading to destruction of ecosystems and eventually the dinosaurs and, you know, that led to... To mammals coming to the fore, and I'd like to, I'd like to have seen that process, I guess. Okay. Whether it. So what, what you're asking for is two tickets, one before, one oh, after. No, I'd like to, you know, as long as I can, <laughs> as long as I, it can be assumed that I survived the impact. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a rule. Yeah. You don't, enough. Yeah. So I'd like to go just immediately before the impact, and I would like, you know, if it's a sort of desert island, I'd like enough time, sort of provisions, I guess, to <laughs> to survive the the sort of lack of resources in the immediate aftermath okay. and just to see what happened as okay. a result of, of that impact and how you know how quickly ecosystems changed and how that affected animal life and so forth that's a really good answer <laughs> you think yeah it's not archaeology though you know I mean, you no. get these people coming to to visit universities who uh, for archaeology degrees who think that dinosaurs <laughs> are part of archaeology but but they're not and you know, I guess that's something I've learnt during my career is that, um, you know, I don't feel unrestricted. Even though I'm teaching in an archaeology department, it's it's nice to have interests that are 
chronologically beyond the limits of archaeology. Mm. So I've become more and more interested in geology and paleontology as I go, <laughs> as I go through, really. Oh, Keith, you're undermining the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm, I'm just saying, in a way, you know, some of these gaps, some of these, some of these um, divisions are artificial because, yeah. you know, the techniques that geologists and paleontologists use are you know, are very, very similar to our, to those of archaeologists. You know, it's arguable who stole whose techniques, mm -hmm. but there, are, there aren't those divisions, really. No. Not, there shouldn't be those divisions. No, I agree. Because we do the same thing. Absolutely. Keith, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really pleasure. interesting. Um, and uh, I'll let you go now. OK, thank Cheers. you. All the best. <laughs>
listening to Keith there and reminding myself, it is it is a time of life where you get to focus on something like you never get to focus yeah. after it. You get to live live something rather than just sort of go through the motions of something. You get to make something that's massively a part of you. And um, I wouldn't say I'm envious seeing you go through that process now. But, <laughs> um, <as> <laughs> but certainly there they're, they're are pros to it that maybe we don't chat about as much as we could and that's it's quite nice to hear him i'm looking that. forward to the benefit of hindsight <laughs> yeah oh it was a rosy time lawrence it was a rosy time Lies. <laughs> pompeii the paleolithic yeah that yeah. is freaking awesome i can't believe you said that first time <laughs> i know lucky i haven't had a few beers <laughs> yeah i mean the the dating of those volcanic layers with the Argon, argon dating. <laughs> it's just such a phenomenal mix of sciences. Yeah, and, I love uh, that. Keith was alluding to it in the interview, and, and you mentioned it as well, that there's aspects of geology, there's aspects of human evolutionary science, mm. there's aspects of all sorts of disciplines, chemistry, physics, being brought to bear on a very singular question that kind of ties into a focal point in human history. And having sort of the, the conditions for that to have happened in the past in the first place, plus the ability to interrogate and and investigate those specific events to the point where you can use a volcanic deposit as a way of dating an archaeological site is just phenomenal. Yeah. I think I liked as well what Keith mentioned about why he's proud of that work is how looking at somewhere different and something different has helped to change people's perception and understanding of that specific research area. And it's almost comparable to, on a small scale, if you're doing an excavation and you do test pits, you're just getting a keyhole insight into that site. And you're not, you, you, depending on what comes you come down onto, will shape your interpretation. And what, what Keith's done is that, but on a whole landscape yeah. scale. <laughs> and I love that about archaeology in general, the different approaches and the 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 downside of relying a lot of our interpretations of the past and human activity on a few key case studies or a few excavations or a few discoveries or a few dates and i love that people can just go well let's let's just test that and completely throw it open to to new interpretations there's a, an element of that interpretive process that we were chatting through earlier today as we wandered up to the studio we'll we were walking through the park and you spotted the the stones. Oh yeah, the um the memorial the stones memorial for planting stones. Yeah, trees. Yeah. yeah. And it, stones in a perfectly straight line that would presumably be cut into pits alongside a path. And you pointed out to me at the time that to an archaeologist in the future, that's just gonna be a line of stones <laughs> next to a ditch. And how would someone interpret that? And are we behaving around it today? as we would interpret someone behaving around it in the past. Absolutely. And I would say we were getting it very wrong. I really hope archaeologists <laughs> in the uh, future find a, a stone hole and say this was placed here by a mayor in 1993 <laughs> yeah. in, to commemorate <laughs> King George. A mayoral <laughs> processual way. <laughs> but it, yeah, that was funny, that discussion, because there were stones either side of a stream, wasn't there? Yeah. yeah. So you had uh, two rows of stones and a ditch in the middle of it. Yeah. 
And you can see you can avenue, see the archaeology yeah, record now. A processional way. It dates perfectly to the plastic age. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Mid to late plastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God, does that mean our demise is too? <laughs> this has been a dark episode. <laughs> we started out with rejection. We got to nuclear holocaust. We got through um, the rise of the mammals. At least came yeah, into it, but right. the demise. But of then the, the demise of the yeah. mammals. <laughs> plastic, oh, plastic age. Dear me, dear me. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll cheer up next week. <laughs> That's it. I, one thing I I should pick up on is that we, Keith talks about Boxgrove as yes. being an amazing site, and I know I, I noticed we don't actually explain what what Boxgrove is. So I, I believe he's talking about the excavations there done by UCL in in the nineteen nineties, and I mean whilst Pompeii is like the perfect Roman site in in Italy, or um, um, I, I think your example was Maiden Castle being the perfect example yeah. of, of Boxgrove is the early to mid Paleolithic like perfect case study. It's about Woodstock, isn't it? That's it's it's it. the one yeah. that yeah. you kind of you, there are excavations like that across archaeology where within your specialism, within your area of interest, there's one that's either changed the game or made a significant discovery and you you tend to, your mind goes, oh, I'd love to have been on that when they made that discovery or when when Wheeler was digging the earthwork and things like that. Yeah. It, it, and Boxgrove, I think, to Paleolithic archaeologists must be, in, in the UK at least, must be one of those sites. That's it, and it's got a man named after it as well, hasn't it? Boxgrove the fossils Man's. of Boxgrove man yeah, were discovered. Yeah. So he was, what, Homo heidebergensis? Well pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just about. <laughs> An extinct relative of human be- modern man, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> That's great Wikipedia. Uh, what are you about? I'm not reading it. <laughs> One of our earlier hominid ancestors. That's yeah. It. Homo. I'm not even going to try. Go on, go on. Homo heidebergensis. heidebergensis. Yeah, that's how I'd pronounce it. <laughs> I've loved this week's episode. I think Keith is uh, it's probably one of my favourite ones so far. I'm not saying that because he's my PhD supervisor. Please pass yeah, me a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's been it's it, what I liked about it is an angle that I certainly would never look at. Um, yeah, again, he's had one of those careers where he hasn't just gone in a straight line. He's he's darted around different yeah. directions and he's made some of it himself in a big way as well. That's it. That. And but also highlighted why we've done this podcast because it's really easy to assume archaeology is a career that involves digging holes yeah, and yeah. focusing on the Romans. And whilst really? Keith started with the Romans, he certainly... And did mention dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, dinosaurs, <laughs> of course. Um, but it's all he... about the snails. Yeah, snails, snails, snails. <laughs> old, old, old Lava snails. Lava flow snails. And environmental yeah. stuff. Ugh. Oh. Join us next week for another podcast. Um, please subscribe to us on uh, on all your podcast channels. Yeah, make sure channels. you like us five stars. That's <laughs> it. Give us a rating. Give us a comment. Subscribe, and there'll be plenty more of these where they came yeah. from. Tweet us. Get in touch with us in any way you want, and we'll That's maybe and we'll start fielding you. your questions soon as well. Yes. <laughs>